huge population of uh, Ukrainians. And uh, I met one uh, at work, one of the ladies. She spoke beautiful Polish. I'm Polish, Canadian, you know. And she spoke really beautiful Polish. I said, where did you learn that? And she said, mom sent me to the Polish church because she said that uh, all the Russian churches were, you know, uh, full of KGB, so I was attending Polish church. So, you know, quite interesting uh, tidbit. I don't have any really questions. I, I love listening to this uh, page, and uh, I really commend the, the job you guys uh, uh, doing, and, you know, keeps me from my work, really. Anyhow, that's all I have to say. Thank you, Arthur. Axel, are you there? Sorry, I was just finishing the last tidbits of the homemade Solyanka I was given. <laughs> Sorry, what did I miss? Arthur was just telling us um, about how <clears throat> the Russian Orthodox Church is um, somebody who knew that went, uh, that he met, sorry, spoke perfect Polish and he asked the lady how, how how she spoke perfect Polish, uh, and she said that her family sent her to the to the Polish church rather than the Russian church because the Russian church was full of KGB spies. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, that that is strange as it may sound to people in the West. It is uh, not uncommon. There were people who converted to the Greek Orthodox Church as long as it was allowed to operate again. I think that started, if I'm not quite mistaken. Uh, hold on, I think in 1962, I will have to check, but I think that is the case. Um, obviously, I mean, in Odessa and in Mariupol and the places where essentially Greeks play in Asafrol, it was always there, but uh, the Orthodox Church as otherwise had been persecuted. But Stalin was the one who actually had the current version of the Russian Orthodox Church reopened. And you can, uh, there is no way to dismiss the notion uh, that it has been full of the ranks of the, shall we say, the relig religiously motivated mind police. Uh, it's not quite clear whether we can uh, deign to believe that any of those patriarchs ever there actually believed in anything else than money. Sorry, anything else than power and money. And yes, of course. And this is just very good anecdotal evidence. And uh, by the way, I commend the family for having done so. And they learned a beautiful language. Right, who's next? You have an order at all, Axel? If not, we'll go Gurney, Alex, and then stop prevention. Uh, as I was, as I was, Solyanka impaired. I really don't have an order at the moment. I apologize, but I know what Gurney wants to say uh, because we had a chat. But please um, go as you see fit. Hey, yeah, thanks, Axel. Um, Ozan, uh, yeah, I was just chatting very briefly with with Axel, and there was um, um, there was a uh, some some new videos earlier today from the Azovstal area um and then there were some older videos uh from the rubisney area and so i made some comments briefly on it but i just wanted to come back and, and I, I have a little bit more context and and I, I wish i could figure out how to share the two links to the nest um but i sent them to axel so maybe he could put them up um uh, but in the video today um as you guys talk about uh as of stall and, and Mariupol, um even cnn i i think got it wrong i'm gonna say i think because i, I don't know for certain but if you look at the video um it shows what, what appears to be what's labeled as airstrikes, but appears to be um, mine clearing what, what we in the United States call a, a miklik, a, a mine clearance line charge um, 
it, it's a it's basically a, a plastic explosive type that's uh, in a long line. It's coiled up, but it's essentially shot out as a projectile. Um, if you could think of this exploding out of out of a, a tube uh, and laying across, you know, an area, uh, you know, up to a hundred yards long of of explosive, and what's used is to punch holes, you know, lines so vehicles can go through to to clear minefields, um, or you know, some light obstacles. In, in my experience, I've I've seen it used for. Um, but some of those videos today, it looks very clear that um uh the russians appear to be appear i say appear because you can't see the vehicle but you can see the diagonal what looks like the diagonal line charges going across the azov stall plant and then if you look at the uh the rubisny video from several weeks ago um they did something similar but this time when they shot the line out they uh, did not anchor the back of it so if you let the whole line go out it sort of ends up through momentum coiling onto itself and, and almost all of the explosive line instead of laying out you know, over a hundred meters or so, um, coils up. Um, and, and in that video, it, it looks unfortunately pretty devastating on, on a, on a building that was very large in Rubisney, a concrete building. So I just wanted to add clarity to that. And, and it, you know, uh, that was labeled as a, as a UR 77 meteorite, uh, Russian engineering vehicle that apparently, um, is, is their version of these mine clearance line, line charges. Um, so I w just wanted to put that out there. Um, and then just a, a personal anecdote of why I think it's it's um, it's important. I mean, we've we've spent time in the past in this space and, and everywhere talking about um, certain weapons and, and some of the most mundane repurposed things can can unfortunately have destructive effects. Um, you know, I, I know we've talked, spent plenty of time toss ones and, and everything else. So I'm not going to not going to ring those bells now. But I, I just wanted to. In, in order to understand this and shed light on it so that, you know, it, it can be countered very easily. It's something that has to be deployed at short range. It's not dropped from the air. It's not, um, you know, it's not an airstrike. It's not a missile strike. Um, but, you know, these things are compared to an artillery shell. They're, they're um, from, I, again, I wish we could get an engineer in here from my understanding of it. Um, they're mainly plastic explosives with a higher detonation velocity um, and obviously a smaller weight per per um, you know you, you don't need nearly as much for the same effect so so in a personal anecdote I I've personally taken two 152 daisy chained uh, Soviet artillery shells that were buried about five meters off the road um, by all accounts should have destroyed anything within that range um, however because because the they were buried just deep enough. There was zero fragmentation that came off of them and the shock wave was directed upwards. So I can personally vouch to, to the fact that um, the material velocity of things and the fragmentation, all of this matters. Um, and just because I was in the, the kill radius of, of two of these shells in a vehicle, the vehicle took no shrapnel. It took indirect shrapnel. That is the stuff that came out of, out of the ground, out of the hole into the vehicle, did not pierce the vehicle. Um, and, and metal being malleable is, is able to absorb that. Now, as long as the human body can take the, the pressure wave and the, and the overpressure, um, you know, at the time, it, it felt like the floor of the vehicle actually came out. And that's, um, you know, looking down at the floor of the vehicle, I could say, I thought the floor was completely gone and that it came up, but that's just simply the shock wave traveling through um, the vehicle and kicking um, your feet from the floor all the way into your chin, um, you know, almost knocking you out. So ju just to say this is um, the, the pressure wave and the blast and, and the effects of it and the velocity, all of that matter. And I think we should just, you know, look at this to understand that it's it's 
not necessarily a new development, but it's an adaptation of um, an existing weapon that they have and that they're using it, you know, they're potentially using that currently. Um, but as long as they know what is potentially being used, um, very easy to counter it. It has to be, you know, pretty close under, I, I would assume, I don't know the, the ranges here, but definitely under two kilometers, probably closer to one kilometer. Um, it's not coming in via the air. You know, it's not dropped. It's not dropped from a distance. It's not coming in on a missile. Um, so as long as, you know, people have an awareness of what these vehicles are, I also am making an assumption here. I think they're in lower numbers um, of availability to the Russians. But I thought it was just important to add some of that to it, because if you look at the videos, unfortunately, it does look like it's quite more destructive than, you know, two weeks of artillery shells coming in on it. And again, it just has to do with the, the blast properties, the material properties, um, and, and having space next to a fixed object, allowing the blast wave to propagate as opposed to the blast wave to be up against something and shape in a different direction. So creating high pressure on one side, low pressure on the other. Um, and, and for instance, when, when that vehicle, when, when that vehicle I was in took those two shells, the metal on the vehicle was fine. Now the windows, relatively speaking as a material property, um, are much more brittle, uh, even though they're, they're, uh, armored bulletproof glass windows, those crack just, just to say they cannot handle the overpressure like the substance of, of the metal could that was slightly more malleable and able to um, absorb the pressure wave and and sort of resonate with it and allow it to pass through. But I just say this because it looks unfortunately like they're using these um, to some effect. Uh, again, I, I can't speculate on what it's actually doing to Azostal, but I can say that on normal concrete structures, um, the shock wave produced by it looks to be uh, pretty significant. Um, and in terms of bang for the buck, it, it seems to be a very um, underrated weapon. And as long as there's an awareness of that, it, you know, it can be easily countered, uh, hopefully. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Garnet. Yeah. Oh, on you go. I was just going to say, Garnet, I've, I've used um, my Koyan line charges before, and I, I've seen, I've, I know somebody that was basically, he was in, he was in the Mind Clearing team, actually, and he, uh, I'll try and maybe see if he can come on and speak. Um, he, he'll know a lot about this. But they they are incredibly dangerous. If they're not tethered to the ground, then, like you say, once it's shot the whole hundred the hundred yards, it'll then which way rip out the ground if it's not tethered enough, and it'll it'll just keep going and <clears throat> coil up, and that charge will. I'm trying to remember how many charges are on it, but imagine there's twenty five charges on it, then it's twenty five times the damage of what one charge would be is what is intended and and I, I've seen the video in the business and it does look it it looks terrible it looks it's it's I think they're purposefully doing it do you know that I think they're purposefully not tethering it and doing this on purpose just to indiscriminately cause as much damage as possible I think they're, they know well aware of what they're doing with them but yeah um I'll send you I've got some information on them I'll send it to you Gurney but we'll go Alex and stop preventionism then resist for humanity Garnet, if you've got anything else, come back. Uh, and then we'll... No, that, that's all. You, you hit it on the head. And I was just going to say, you know, pound for pound, weight for weight, um, it's not the same as, as an artillery shell because it's a, it's a cost, it's an expense, right? The, the plastic explosives, they're, they're lighter by weight. So you can, you can 
the projectile can fire more of that in there pound for pound than you can with with an artillery shell or with a missile just because um it's a much it's a much uh more expensive class of, of explosive and so by weight you know it doesn't seem like it should should punch that high but but it does because it's it's fundamentally different if that if that adds clarity Oh, 100%, 100%. Alex, on you go then, stop revenge. By the way, um, he wanted to put the two videos into the nest. How do we do this? Oh, send. Um, they need, are, they, are they two tweets that you have, or are they just videos? Uh, videos and tweets. Uh, he has them. So if you go to the tweet and then go to share it and then share it to the nest. You know, see see on the bottom of the tweet, there's like three, three symbols. And there's one symbol, which is like... Um, an arrow pointing up with a with a, a, a U under it. If you click on that, when you're on the phone, it'll say at the top, share to it, and it'll have this, the, the title of the space and then share it into the nest. If you click on the link that he sent you from both the tweets. Ah, got it. Thank you. I will do that. Thank you, Hudson. No problem. No problem. You'll need to remain as a speaker, but don't leave as a speaker before you do it, Gurney. You won't be able to do it. So don't don't drop down before you put them into the nest. Alex, on you go. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, uh, sorry, caught me out. Um, in terms of, so you spend a lot of time sort of answering questions, the same questions over and over again, and often um, they're not directly germane to, like they're, they're just sort of pie in the sky, you know, what about strategic, you know, strategic exchanges and, um, you know, black magic and all, all this other stuff. Um, I was just wondering, what's the sort of, what what questions have, have you guys been thinking about but haven't been asked about? And, and what's important questions that you don't think people are asking, um, if that makes sense? Axel? I think we should be talking a lot more about two aspects of conventional war. Both, I mean, one is what Gurney just highlighted, and I think this is a good, a good part of our exchange. Conventional war is both gruesome and boring. It's boring because everything is down to movement, deployment, logistics, physics, and then the vagaries of explosions, which may or may not go the way anyone likes them. That then triggers off the gruesome part. Um, and we're not highlighting that enough from my point of view. Um, we've done a fair bit of it. But uh, the longer you do it, the more doom and gloom it sounds. And it shies people away to an extent, but it is part of what this is all about. This is creating awareness. The main narrative of all of this is that this is a very, very gruesome, tough business. This is heavy-duty conventional war, which Europe in that format has not seen, and in that intensity, on that scale, has not seen since the Second World War. Um, that's something which needs to be highlighted more often. We should talk more about the impact of the forced uh, displacement and deportations and the crimes committed, but then again, we've done a fair bit of that as well by means of having Olga Rudatska a report from Irpin, as some of you will remember. And everyone who's ever heard her report on it will never forget it. There's other locations which have come to light. There's more locations of which um, 
I think we all are aware that they will come tonight. And we should be making this a constant topic or a repeated topic. Then there's the uh, strategic issue, which we hear this way beyond our pay grade. We can reflect upon it, but nothing more than that. So we should we I don't think that we have a have a necessarily best insight. If we can focus on the other two issues first and foremost, uh, that I think um, fills one void which typically exists in, in media. And then thirdly, but there we are doing it, and uh, you can fault our dearly beloved Yehuda for his dad jokes as much as much as you like. Although I think secretly people like them. Um, that's fine, because a little levity goes a long way. But I think that we're moving people out of the scope of the forced narrative here all the time. We're trying to reset them to think critically and see this as for what it is, information warfare waged by the Russian Federation, its proxies, assets, argent provocateurs and useful idiots in the West, but constantly trying to dictate the media cycle of the next day. And uh, we are simply trying to make sure that there is better information, that you can ask us all your questions and that we'll be here and we'll answer the questions until the cows come home. But we will also try to set out those points which matter more, and that's uh, what I just highlighted. This is how I would address this. I think that answers your question. Uh, uh, stop revengeism. Yeah, hi. So I, I raised my head when Walter was speaking with rather funny comment. Funny and sad, and sad at the same time. And then I waiting in in waiting line i read news about comments from former president of brazil de silva who commented on ukraine and then i realized the two different topics have a lot in common so uh between i mean two so, such different news like walter speaking in this group and uh and um, uh, president de silva in brazil uh, they have something in common, and I'll try to explain what. So when Walter speaks in English, uh, I'm actually have uh, mixed feelings every time. His uh, pronunciation in English uh, way better than mine, and uh, I would say unachievable for my generation. I'm, I'm older than Walter. We are the same origin, right, from Ukraine. But um, I am in stop, North America. Stop. Yeah, don't don't put yourself down because your English is is a hundred times better than my Ukrainian mate. So all right, right. No, 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 no. This yourself, is look, look, look. Down. No, listen, listen. I live in Northern America for more than twenty years, and uh, Walter lives something about two years, and whatever I do in my life, I will never be able to pronounce uh, this. Uh, it's called uh, vocal fry, I think. Then that that's the way how you pronounce in English. And um, uh, I would, I, I love it and I hate it. I hate it because I'm jealous. He's younger, he's, uh, he's uh, pronunciation better. And this is the new Ukraine. He represents new generation of, of, of Ukrainians who from day one probably started watching cartoons in English. And that's how you develop this better uh, perception of, of language and better sounding of language. And I, then I suddenly realized, you now know, we know, now we know Looney Tunes. 
Uh, okay, uh, but listen. No, I, it's I, called Looney Tunes. Uh, it's the Saturday morning cartoons which people were watching. Correct. Yeah, days. that's what made Bugs Walter Bunny Walter. and the likes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, my generation, did, we didn't have a chance to watch it, right? You understand. I was growing up in the 70s in USSR, in Soviet Ukraine. Yes, now. Yes. So zero, like, it's pure, pure propaganda, everything in Russian, a little bit Ukrainian, and that's it. No English at all. But anyway, um, uh, and then I realized, Unlike me, when I speak in English, Walter would be considerably, sorry, instantly considered Nazi in Russia because of his pronunciation in English. Because that's what, in fact, Russians call Nazis. When Ukrainians sounding not like Russians, that's what they hate deeply inside. And every second Russian probably understand it and will never translate it to you to explain why he called Ukrainian Nazis. Because new generation of Ukraine, they not, they, they look the same basically, right? I mean, still uh, Eastern European, still dressed uh, similarly, but they sound differently. And this is kind of driving crazy Russian nationalists because um, again, I will never be able to uh, upset Russian nationalists to such extent, but Walter can, and he instantly upsets those. And uh, this is motive which absolutely un understandable even in Europe. So when Europeans hear Ukraine, all, almost all Ukrainians are Nazis. They think, huh, maybe we don't know something about Ukraine. Maybe they are really so right wing and hate everyone. And then facts around Premier Minister of Ukraine, either Buryat or Jewish or again Jewish or but barely Ukrainian. Origin. So how can they can be Nazis if president uh, president he's not religious Jewish but he's of Jewish origin anyway so and Russians cannot also explain they just call us instantly uh, Nazis and this is precisely because this this new generation failure it's not my generation failure we are so vox but generation of Walter they sound differently and this is kind of and they are scared of this. It's like they're losing connection to generations. We're losing those Ukrainians. They say it openly in Russia. We're losing this new generation. Look, they, they, you know what they, one of the biggest atrocities now in Mariupol and Eastern Ukraine, they separated kids from, from parents if parents associated with Ukrainian state. The reason is, and they say it openly, because those parents will rise them as Nazis. And they uh, separate kids from uh, from parents. This is biggest atrocities you can probably imagine if you're in, in, in good mind. And uh, they send those parents to Siberia and then uh, then discuss in parliament how to re-educate those kids. Openly, guys, openly. It's not, I'm not... Um, we know, we actually made a, we made a session here on this one already two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's known fact they discuss openly on Russian TV how to re-educate those kids taken from Ukrainian parents. Uh, it's it's Nazism. That's what I call Nazism, and we should all call Nazism. And again, and uh, how it connected to Brazilian president. Um, so Brazilian president said, obviously, uh, President Zelensky failed to negotiate with Russia. And you mean the I, former president? You mean yes, uh, exactly, exactly. Lun Lunatic Luna. Yes, De Silva, his last name. I, I, I knew about him not more than he knew about Ukrainian president day ago, right? So he's, uh, 
I heard maybe this name, but I have no idea what he's standing. But somehow he takes courage in this critical time to comment how Ukrainians should negotiate better with Russians. And uh, it, it resonates me with what I heard yesterday about Pope Francis, uh, who calls uh, makes some judgmental comments without even knowing what's going on in Eastern Europe. Surprisingly, but even to a bigger extent, probably from this Luna. To, uh, Luna was a trade union Marxist for a long time. This is his background. He's risen through the ranks, then came in at a moment when there was a huge amount of uh, information asymmetry and, of course, the classic Brazilian income disparity. He rose on a wave of public and populist support on the left and came into the office and as every left-wing trade unionist Marxist leader failed because his policies fail. And then he became corrupt as well, but he re reigned for a long time. And then came the other guy from the other side who failed as well. Mm -hmm. But he's still so, sitting, sitting somewhere now in, uh, in Brazil and making these comments. But well, he was indicted. He was supposed to be in prison for longer. But there you mm -hmm. go. No, but that's how we disconnect again, right? Like uh, how little I understand Brazilian uh, politics. And luckily, I'm not a politician. But he's a politician. And he really doesn't understand what's going on in Europe. And they comment about names. He does. Have... That's the problem. He actually does. But he follows the lead out of a good... Like the Indians follow the Russians out of their long-standing affinity for the Soviet Empire and their support. And he has been part and parcel of the undermined left. It's a long-standing story. It's mm -hmm. no surprise. This is exactly what has happened in South America for ages. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, we no, just uh, summarizing. Uh, we really uh, disconnected between continents on uh, informational level. And if you want to prevent a rising of Nazism in, uh, next time, not in next time and not in Russia for sure, we will make sure all world will make sure there is no more Putin in Russia. But uh, we can have this rise in Latin America, in Asia, somewhere. So we have to connect better. The global world is not so bad. That's what I learned from this war. Uh, we have, to, you know, like uh, uh, global world and maybe even artificial intellect has to do some job. I mean, to prevent some stupid mistakes. I don't know, because our brains messed up, obviously. That's also another lesson from this war for me. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for your attention. And uh, Walter... A good job on accent working on accent I, and i think you didn't even do any effort you just it's just it's just uh, naturally because you were watching those cartoons which i don't even know names thank you yeah well uh i wouldn't praise my english skills too much uh because accent, knows, accent man yes, accent. Er everyone knows that i have a funny accent uh but that said you're right every every next generation uh, is getting better and right now in Ukraine English language is it, it's not something special like absolutely young, yeah young I just visited that... Ukraine absolutely mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I visited Ukraine yeah. for months yeah the young people they look different they sound different they move differently whoa I like went to Ukraine four months ago and said to myself am I like in Ukraine like am I so disconnected is, is it my problem they change so fast. It's amazing. And it's good. But see the war now. That's what Russians hate. 
that's what they say. Nazis, see, they look differently, they sound differently, they betrayed us. Anyway, wow, that's what's Nazism for Russia. Right. Yeah, and uh, as I said, like every every next generation will get it better. And uh, right now, English language is not something special in Ukraine among uh, young people. Everyone specifically, more or less speaks English or is fluent in English. It's normal for young Ukrainians. Because when I was younger, essentially, I started to learn English from the books, which had texts about uh, Grandpa Lenin in those. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of old. And uh, eventually, it, it gets better. Every next generation will just... Sorry, English, English books about Lenin in Ukraine? Right, yeah, because it it was in what nineteen ninety four. Oh, five. all right. So Soviet, uh, Soviet books. Okay, okay. Uh, it's remnants of the uh, English, uh, English uh, school books. Yeah, you know, in my time, English was not a first foreign language in Ukraine. It was first of all German, then French, and only then English. So, uh, if I wanted to study English, in uh, all my uh, childhood, I was studying German, not childhood, in school, it was foreign language German, and uh, I know also that in university I met kids after school who were studying French, and only more, maybe barely I could meet anyone who was studying in, in Soviet Ukraine English. It was mainly uh, German and French. So, uh, yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, let's get to Yuha and uh, then to Resist for Humanity. Actually, I believe Resist for Humanity was first and then Yuha and then Peace. Very true. Resist was first. Um, thank you all. I'll be quick. I just wanted to first thank you all for the great service this space is providing. Um, there, it's a great example. I love watching um, decentralized collective activism come together online. and. But you all have done here is just a, a great example of that. Um, and it's very impactful. <clears throat> the latest um, political science studies are showing that social media influencers are more impactful than traditional political advertising. So this, like, and, what, and I'm saying these things because I started talking to um, some more of, uh, like, my friends and family, uh, fellow Americans, about uh, the Ukrainian war. And... I was surprised at how uninformed most of them were. And um, now most of them were open to sharing and uh, were, seemed generally interested to, to learn more. So that's the good news. But if there's Americans that are just in the space and you don't like talking about politics, like this is something that um, is kind of, this is worth dealing with the uncomfortableness of uh, having those political conversations with your friends and family because we need to. Um, we need to we need to keep the public uh, awareness up and the public uh, support for this up so that our government does the right thing in arms Ukraine. Um, thank you all again. I appreciate your uh, your service. So now it's me. You are here, I guess. Well, well, I have been thinking quite a lot in the past days, and uh, one thing, what in this whole 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 situation, what uh, I realized actually today really realized is that uh, what has impressed me one of the things which has impressed me most is the the positive 
uh, attitude of the Ukrainians and the people who support Ukraine in the media. So there's humor <laughs> in this horrible, horrible situation. Uh, they, they, there is still like a light tone to this. And that sends, uh, that sends like positive signals and that's uh, necessary in order to get sympathy and support from other countries. So if the Ukrainians would just go like, we hate the Russians, we kick them out and they are all bastards, you know, if, if there would be this kind of attitude, uh, I don't think that the Ukrainians would get so much sympathy from, from other countries, but it's, there's sort of very calm, like uh, warmth of heart, which can be felt. And I think that's, and also this this humor, sense of humor with these tractors pulling those, those Russian tanks and whatever. There's so much brilliant memes going around and they are not like mocking and describing the Russians as, as or dehumanizing them or demonizing them. And it's, they're not like hostile in that sense as the, the Russian propaganda. When you see the, what the Russians uh, push to the media, it's very hostile, very aggressive, very negative, demonizing, dehumanizing. And I think that that's uh, a very, very big strength and asset for the Ukrainian side. And I have, um, how would I say, an embarrassing confession to make. Uh, we, I can't even imagine what the people in, in Ukraine are currently going through. And yet still uh, today, I noticed how much this whole mess is going on my nerves. And I've been following uh, the situation and I being felt helpless. And uh, what can I do? And all these news of these atrocities and uh, discussion about strategy and loss of life and uh it's it's uh if it's so stressful for me after these 70 days i have my imagination doesn't allow me to well have any idea what it's to be there on the ground and then uh, the question was raised uh, a couple of minutes ago well 15 minutes ago perhaps what questions are there which could be asked and this confession, which I just made, that I'm very, very low, my emotionally overloaded at the moment with, with this whole whole mess. And uh, what I realized that discussions turn pretty much around: what can we do against the Russians? What can we do to help Ukraine in war, like humanitarian aid, weapons, help the refugees, and so on? But the question, what then came to my mind was, what can we do for peace? Not to win the war or conquer the Russians, but for peace. How can we, uh, I don't know, I, I really can't explain it properly, I think, but uh, peace uh, can be achieved without concentrating so much in winning the war. But is there any way any means, any whatever, meme war or any uh, letters somewhere or some diplomatic efforts or whatever, how we could 
be supporting the peace. Because at the moment, I don't know if you can catch my, my thought here, but we are very, very, very much focused that we are now in war and beating the Russians and uh, supporting the Ukrainians in, in war. But my thought was that uh, if we... That, that was the thing which has uh, overloaded my mind. But what I would like to see is peace in Ukraine. I and think I have an answer. I can... Do you mind... Okay. No, yeah, I, I, I'm actually through. Uh, that, that, was what I wanted, that was what I, I wanted to say. But please let the the uh, moderators sure. decide who who talks first. Oh, you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you both. But uh, stop irredentism before you go in. Let me just give because I have an answer for this. Uh, the, the problem is you have to um, you have to travel back in time a little for it. About four months in of the Second World War, when Britain defended itself, things were not looking so good. A year in, things were not looking that good. They were hard. Now, I'm German today, but we had family on all sides of all fronts, because that's how we somehow are distributed across Europe. There were no letters anymore between the families, as far as I found out. But I do know that people read in British newspapers about the exhaustion which set in. Now they are talking in these newspapers about exhaustion only to a little extent because that was considered to be defeatist and defeatist and you know where I'm coming from, why this at that point in time under censure didn't work. Still, people had these feelings and these, this exhaustion sets in. Now, our human brains are not easily adaptable to an overflow, uh, say, like a fire hose of news. Therefore, it is obvious that a social media present war like this one, even more so than what some of us experience in some life even amongst us here, a number of us live, but what people experienced at the beginning of the 90s in the first Iraq war, and then even with the Yugoslav war, the first one, and then whatever followed out of this, which was essentially brought to us by CNN. The overflowing amount and the massive amount of media presence, and now this social media, say, roster and roll on news, penetrates our minds much more than our ancestors had to deal with in the Second World War. If you talk to people from Oklahoma, Montana, Idaho, the likes, when many, many people came from who served and later for the Americans, they didn't, other than radio and certain updates and whatnot, they didn't hear of the war that much. They missed their relatives. They had letters from the front at some point and with great delay, but they didn't have the, the imagery and the sound always with them. There were certain events which were quite melodramatic and also brought to them on radio and then came, you know, the reels of news of the day and whatnot in, in cinemas, but it's a different thing. It doesn't overload your brain that much. So the exhaustion you're currently conflicted with is, in a strange way, a very close reflection of the exhaustion civilians have closer to the war. So what this war does currently, this boring conventional war, as I cited it earlier, it is brought to the households of the Western world without the effective haptic kinetic violence, but with the same look and feel very close to the soul of people all the time. The only way to deal with this, and that's the big, biggest problem, 
This exhaustive effect which sets in is corroborative. It's corrosive. It corroborates data, but it's corrosive in its effect. And by that means, we have to detach ourselves from it. We have to step back, breathe, go out, do family things, abstain from it, and then come back and look at it, but with a detached mind. Because if we fail to be detached without being at the front and without actually being able, this powerlessness, which many people feel that they can't really do anything. And therefore they then at some point in flight into the uh, utopian, oh God, if only could there be peace. Then we fail our Ukrainian friends who know one thing better than anybody because they are really there. They are in the haptic, in the real physical, in the kinetic world. They know that there is only one way to peace with an adverse, hostile, genocidal regime on the other side. And that's peace through victory. Only one way, unfortunately, that is gruesome. That's what I meant by boring. It's hard. It is comprehensively exhaustive. And this is the, the problem with this war being waged by Russia against Ukraine, that the Western audience is completely unprepared for in its value systems, in its short attention span, in its constant navel gazing, in, in its predicament and of you know being immersed in social media and our daily uh, routine. We are not yet in our mindset in a war economy. We are not committed to this yet. And I'm not saying that our volunteers here are not, but the Western societies are currently still on the brink that they think, oh, yeah, this could all go on. The Oscars come on and this and that and the other. Yes, of course, things have to go on. But there is some other thing which actually needs to be done. There is a job to be done. As much as this, you know, flight or fight situation, which always comes up, evolutionary biologists will talk to you about it. Or you can look it up quite easily. Most people freeze up. Most people at some point in time when they're exhausted, give in, give up. And that is what the other side wants. This is what they need. They need the West to fail, to stand up every day, again and again and again to support Ukraine. This is our obligation. We need to be tougher. We need to take breaks in order to keep our sanity, but we need to be tougher. We need to be harder. We need to be resilient. And we have morally absolutely no excuse. We have to take our breaks to remain sane. That's the key thing. I'm preaching this all the time to everyone I know and everyone who talks to us. If we don't, we fall into the trap of this addiction to information, this constant immersion, and that's dangerous. But trust me, if we give up, there is no Ukraine anymore. If we just plead for peace, there is no Ukraine anymore, and there's almost likely going to be no freedom in Europe anymore. This is the pinnacle of the defense of freedom as a culmination of a war which goes on since 1905, goes through two major wars, world wars as we call them, and which we are fighting with one part of the authoritarian evil which we thought we had beaten. If we fail now, if we fail on this front, we lose everything. We betray our ancestors and their deaths and their commitment. Absolutely agree with you. And I'm far from giving up. Absolutely. That's absolutely not my intention. I have to protect myself a bit. 
and so on. And I didn't want to complain. But I'm oh, I'm suffering so much here. No, I agree. No, I know. That, I, I, that, I, I, you have Kitos. My, I, I, I understand my, you. I'm with my, you. My actual point was that uh, uh, my personal feeling is that uh, I have been concentrating much too much in thinking about strategies and uh, and cruise missiles and naval units and mortars and howitzers and whatever uh, because I can't there's at the moment there's not nothing I can do about it. there are much smarter strategists than I am and there are people who know much more about those things than I do and but and I've been thinking uh, if the Russians now when I think about uh, what can we do for peace then if that's the, the target because that, I think that is the target to get peace in Ukraine after all and uh, we in one way or, or another and oftentimes uh, countries uh, develop uh, external conflicts in order to disguise internal or just to deflect the, the attention from internal problems. And I think that this might also be a bit the case in Russia. And uh, if there are tensions in Russia, within Russia, because at the moment Russia is the problem and Russia is creating the problems, let them deal with those problems in Russia. And what can I do to make the problems inside Russia visible? Can I somehow use social media or some uh, uh, some people had uh, had uh, glued these um, price tags in supermarkets where they spread information about uh, about what's happening actually, and these kind of actions, which are non-violent and are on uh, Russian soil and are targeting the the Russian society uh, they, those are not like military actions in that sense that people get killed but uh, some I, I just no no my my um, as I said <laughs> how can I know what I'm thinking before I hear what I'm saying that the some uh, if I would like to just get the Russians out from Ukraine and that peace would come. What what possibilities are there beyond the military uh, focused thoughts? How many howitzers and how many BDGs or whatever here and there, and what kind of troops and which kind of city and what kind of murders and torture and uh, I, I'm you know I I, I, okay. really, you, 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 I think you got my point. I understand bit, at least absolutely. I I get it. Um, there's a certain consensus amongst people having arisen here, and before I go to our colleagues who have their hands up, um, and you will hear it probably from everyone amongst us by now, because we've discussed it so many times, as there is no possibility to seek or induce a reckoning in Russia, and there's no intention of uh, going down the path of giving them even the possibility to consider making this a larger war. Um, we have constantly advocated that after Ukraine has managed to secure its sovereign territory, Ukraine will unilaterally cease to pursue the other side at some point in time. Whether this ends up in armistice or not is a different thing, but it's highly likely that even if the other side were to continuously try to shell, that Ukraine would simply build up its defenses 
build up a significant missile defense uh, with the support uh, of the West and uh, deconflict as much as possible, depending on how the other side implodes under sanctions and embargoes, uh, Ukraine will enter the EU. Uh, there's a clear path for it. Ukraine will be a NATO member sooner rather than later. And uh, Ukraine will be rebuilt, which is predicated on the fact that Russia has to be contained. And this containment requires exactly what I suggested earlier, that we have to be steadfast, that we have to play a long game, which is what uh, Americans and Brits and others managed to fortunately do after the Second World War, but led by the Americans because others were falling prey to the, say, intentions and insinuations and the sweet tooth of uh, communism and its propaganda to an extent after the war. We have to be very careful about it and it will take a long time because if you deal with uh, a North Korea on the scale of Russia, then despite the fact that its economy is in shambles, that is a different ballgame. It requires a lot of containment. It, we would have to model it on the basis of what has been achieved in the Cold War, but under conditions of today's integrated world economy with a different China than then, and uh, with uh, different communications challenges in the world. But also, don't forget, we are the West. Technology and innovation is on our side. So I'd rather see that there is a good opportunity for us to effectively render containment our best option. Whether that then leads to the implosion of Russia or Russia's disintegration and Russia finding its own reckoning at some point in time, I can't project today, but that's not my job. My job is to make sure, and from my point of view, that is my, that is my job, is to make sure that our volunteer organization is one contributor to what is essentially um, an information awareness, information warfare, quite literally, because we are here to provide data so that people can make educated decisions and don't fall into the agitprop trap of the other side. That's what we do. And we raise money for Nidia Aid in order to support um, people in Ukraine who need that non-lethal support and right away. So combining those two things is what we do today and working towards that containment is what we will be working for in future. That's our option, and that's what we're going to do. And I think this is how we're going to succeed, so that Ukraine can succeed, and therefore Europe can succeed, and therefore the free Western world can succeed. I completely agree. Absolutely. But you said long game, and I think that this long game uh, belongs also democratization or enabling the democratization of Russia. Because as long as this kind of regime is there, then we... These kind of problems will pop up here and there all over the place, well, in the future. And I think the, the long game would really be how can we enable Russia to develop itself to a sane nation. It, uh, it's a really long game. We, nobody can enforce it. Nope. But how can we uh, enable it, that the, the, the development? And I think Not by the moment, same measures we took in the 90s. We cannot no, no, appease them no, as we did in the 90s. Nope, nope, absolutely not. And But I, I think that the North Koreanization of Russia will uh, might not also be the, the best option, but it might be the only option for some time. But just complete isolation. Just cut the pipes, cut the the internet, cut, cut everything, and then 
and then start from scratch, so to say. I don't know. I, I, I'm not an expert, but okay, I'll leave the stage for, for other ones. I'll drop from the stage if, uh, in a while if no one has questions for me. Thanks. Right. Oh, shall we? Uh, we have a number of people who have asked uh, before. I think it was da David Heliana, then Stop uh, Irredentism, and then Peace, correct? We'll just start it this way. David Heliana, Stop Irredentism, and then Peace. David? Uh, good evening. Um... Well, uh, okay. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and um, well, thank you, Walter. Thank you, Fairlane. Thank you, Axel. Thank you to all the um, fantastic gentlemen that uh, I am listening and following since the last weeks. Um, I, I, I don't want to miss anyone, but, uh, there are so great experts and, um, great people listening like M, like, uh, Maciek, like, uh, uh, Drew Winnings, like language learner, like all source, uh, Yehuda, Craig, um, and my fellow Portuguese like Nuno and Spring. Uh, well, I'm Portuguese and um, 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 that was born in your Germany, uh, Axel, okay, in Kaiserslautern, okay, Rheinland-Pfalz. Um, That's funny. I have family <laughs> in Kusel, Landstuhl, and Altenglan. Okay, okay, okay. I know Kaiserslautern well. <laughs> you know Kaiserslautern well? Okay, okay. Unfortunately, my. Uh, German, mein Deutsch, and and my English is not uh, well. I'm not so fluent as you in English, and of course in German. But okay. Um, well, uh, my uh, for our uh, um, well Americans and Canadians, etc. Portugal is uh, a country, a, a former um, well, a foundation country of, of NATO. Um, and it belongs to the to the European Union also, and is the Western uh, country in 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 Europe. Okay, it's a small country with a very big history, um, and well, uh, most uh, I I I'm, I hope to not um, uh, go out of the context because I. I, I want to speak a little bit about Brazil, uh, but um, anyway, I will just give you a, a little bit of my background. I'm an economist and um, a, manager, a manager of a, a company, and well, I have a lot of, uh, so I don't know anything about militaries and uh, uh, things like that. I'm learning with you, uh, with all of you, but um, we ha we have here a, a very big community of Ukrainians that are very well received, uh, very well integrated. Uh, we love them. Okay, it's the second uh, foreign um, um, community uh, after the Brazilians in in Portugal, um, and. They are coming here uh, at this moment. Uh, we have a lot of projects uh, uh, to to supply aid and 
to to receive them to try to integrate them um in, inclusive in, in in the in the market i mean in the for working to giving them houses etc etc um of course we are not uh, uh, concerning gdp per capita we are not uh, one of the most richest countries in europe but uh, well we are far away from from moscow and uh, we have a lot of sun and uh, quality of life and well i think most of the ukrainians they they like very much to be in portugal saying that um let me tell you that the majority of the portuguese uh, are on the side of the ukrainian people of course uh, we are horrified by the genocide against the ukrainian people uh, we are amazed about the enormous courage paid in blood in the barbaric aggression from the russians um, we want to receive the ukrainians in in the european union um, in nato we feel from from here um i am from porto uh, from the north um uh, powerless however um to help uh, um, and um going back to brazil because it was um, a question from our ukrainian friend stop uh irredentism i hope i am uh, saying it correctly um and if you allow me just more a couple of minutes uh not much i i i i promise um well in portugal for instance we have the far right it's not a big part of the the society uh fortunately and the communists